I'm Rob Trzinski. This is Salon of the Refused, where we talk about ideas that are outside the mainstream. My guest today is Ed Niedermeyer, who's the Senior Editor, editor for Mobility Technology at The Drive. Now, mobility technology is just a fancy way of saying cars, right? Uh, it's actually a fancy way of saying uh, everything but cars. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, it's sort of a, a way to encompass everything from autonomous vehicles, shared mobility platforms, sort of all of the new ideas that everyone is getting so okay. excited about these days. So, um, so, so it's yeah. like not your traditional Detroit auto industry blog kind of idea. No, yeah. So that's what I started covering. Um, was definitely Detroit, the auto industry. Uh, that's I remember where I come from and... years ago in the truth about cars and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And um, and so I'm I'm trying to trying to move with the times. I guess um, <laughs> is definitely where um, a lot of the excitement is, and I think there's a lot of interesting stuff happening. Um, and I think there's definitely a a need for voices in in that space that are a little bit out of the the mainstream. Um, considering the mainstream kind of tends to be just sort of cheerleading and not really thinking too hard about, about any of this stuff. Well, I was going to say that having covered this for Real Clear Future back when Real Clear Future still existed, uh, there's there's also a lot of flim-flam and a lot of over-optimism and, and boosterish stuff in that space, which leads me to the other thing you're working on, which is you have a book coming out called Ludicrous, The Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And that, That's I, right. I, I really like that, uh, that uh, subheading because there's been an awful lot of varnishing being done <laughs> on the story of Tesla and Elon Musk. There sure has, yeah. I tried to tried to break out the uh, the paint stripper. Um, it's it's yeah. You know, look, I, I think you know that's really was the main impetus for this book was um, just sort of seeing sort of the a very one sided narrative about this company. Um, and you know, I, I sort of was always a little bit skeptical about them. Um, and uh, and then I, I sort of stumbled across this battery swap thing that they were doing in California I actually ended up spending a Memorial Day weekend four days down at this truck stop in between uh, San Francisco and LA and um, it turned out that it was just this complete sham um, and uh, and I did some research and it turned out the whole thing was to was to basically take advantage of California's the EV credit system now explain um, to me what the battery swap was <clears throat> yeah so um, so, so the idea behind battery swap, right, is that the biggest downside with electric car of electric cars is that they take forever to charge, right? right. And um, that's very inconvenient for people who are used to being able to fill up in five minutes and go on uh, about their business. Um, and so I've always been really interested in battery swap because it's sort of the the way to solve that that number one problem with electric cars. And there was a an Israeli company called Project Better Place, right? Um, that that and and they had this really interesting business plan. It was like a it was like cell phones where they would build this this network and they would sell you a car without the battery so they were solving another problem too which is how expensive electric cars are if they could sell you a car without a battery you're paying about the same as a normal car and then they just basically you you get a mileage plan essentially just like a cell phone so um so so they had this whole this whole you know business plan built around the idea of battery swap Whereas Tesla kind of came out and 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 by the way they went bankrupt and, yeah, and right, right. hundreds of millions of dollars went up in flames, um, and and then Tesla came around and they're like you know we're doing battery swap and so I got really really fascinated um, with that because I didn't understand the how that worked with the with the um, the business plan because you probably you own a Tesla right if you buy a Tesla you own the Tesla swapping out a battery that you own for someone else for some other battery. Um, is a little bit weird. People who own electric cars 
get a little possessive about their batteries because they know how they've treated that battery, right? Right, right. Um, and and so um, so anyway, so I was just I was confused and I couldn't figure out anybody. Um, I couldn't find any any reports on the internet of anybody to actually use this thing, and so that made me really suspicious. Um, long story short, so I go down there, I I check it out. Not only were they not so there was it was the the biggest traffic weekend of in like 20 years or whatever according to AAA there were lines uh long lines for the superchargers at this Harris Ranch location um you know kids in the back seats crying you know while their parents you know they had to wait for for you know they had to wait for an hour to get to the charger and then charge for an hour <laughs> they're stuck at this not really great spot in the middle of Central Valley uh for for 2 hours or more sometimes um, and I asked people, I was like, you know, would you, would you, pay, how much would you pay for a battery swap? And, and, and the ability to just, you know, pull into the station that was right there. They said it was open, um, but it wasn't. And, and, you know, how much would you pay? And, they, and people said, name a price. I would pay, you know, a thousand dollars if I could get out of here right now. <laughs> um, and so uh, what they did do instead of opening that, that battery swap station was actually bring in a couple of extra backup superchargers. And hooked them up to diesel generators, and so we saw this amazing <laughs> sight of these people pulling up in these Teslas and plugging them in to the supercharger, and you could see the cable go about you know 30 feet, and there was this diesel generator putting exhaust up in the air, and you know you talk about the long tailpipe, and that was a, a pretty short long tailpipe, um, and so so anyway, so that that experience, just seeing all that, and then and then doing the research and understanding that. The way California wrote the rules, um, all they had to do was really demonstrate this thing once to to the the Air Resources Board, um, and then they simply by demonstrating that it was possible uh, to swap a Tesla's battery in. I think I think it, I can't remember right now off the top of my head. I think it had to be under ten minutes or something right, like right. that. Um, you know, then okay, well, it's possible, so we'll give you double credits for every car you sell, which was worth, um, you know, five thousand dollars a credit. I mean, this adds up. Oh yeah. And and so anyway, so uncovering this, it was like it was like a, a technological facade that was sort of propping up a financial facade because also all of Tesla's profitable quarters up until just this year or this last year um, were all completely um, came from from. ZEV credits, so the sales of those credits. So, so like you said, sort of a technological facade propping up this financial facade. And when I sort of realized, you know, what was going on, then I was like, wait a second, I'm more than just skeptical now. I'm suspicious. And so I started digging into Tesla and found a whole bunch of interesting stuff. And and that's where the book came from. Well, that's the interesting thing is that that with Tesla, I think what really propels it is there's there's this tremendous will to believe. A lot of people want, you know, it's like the old the old X-Files thing. We has that poster, I want to believe. A lot of people yes. really want to believe in the Tesla story. Now, why is it do you think they want to believe so hard? So, you know, people have wanted to believe in electric cars for a long time. Um, you, you look back at the history of electric cars, and there's always been this really profound sense among a lot of people, not a lot of people, but but some people, that like this was the cure all. This is the way that we're going to be able to maintain our lifestyles, mm -hmm. right? Of, of private car ownership and everything that we love about about Americans and uh, America and cars, right? But but get rid of all of the environmental guilt that comes along with it, right? And and it was the it was the have your cake and eat it too thing. I mean, electric cars have always kind of been that, and um, 
to some extent. And, and there's always been this belief also that like people have believed that that technology was mature and ready for mass adoption since the seventies, right? Since the, since the energy crisis. Um, and, and there've been like these numerous sort of false starts where people have thought, oh, it's ready. And now we're finally here, but you know, the oil companies are, are, are keeping it down or they're buying the battery patents and, and hiding them. And, you know, there, there've just always been these explanations for why it, it hasn't come yet. And then like Tesla came along and really like took that have your cake and eat it too idea and just supercharged it right because <laughs> not only were you getting an environmentally friendly car you're getting like the fastest car on the road and like the highest tech car on the road and all these yeah. other cool things that came along with it well, i've always thought that was the the real genius of tesla was you know the electric cars before that or, or high, even some of the more like, fuel efficient hybrids like the uh, the prius or the yep. Pius, or whatever you call it, uh, is uh, they were sort of environmental hair shirts. They were, you exactly. know, you went with a dumpy, slow, tiny, little, unglamorous car to show how dedicated you were. And the genius of Tesla was, no, we're going to do a roadster. We're going to do a sports car. We're going to do something sleek and futuristic and really exciting and interesting. So it seems like, again, you can have the best of both worlds. You can have the exciting uh, car with, with ludicrous mode acceleration, and then yep. you can also have the, uh, but without any of the environmental guilt, you can you can feel right. better than other people because you are not contributing to global warming. But, yep. but but let's talk about some of the realities then of what happens with you know the technology not really being as mature as people want to think it is. What are the problems that come up with inherently with with that are still inherent problems with the electric car, electric vehicles? Um. Well, so I mean, look, uh, I'm I'm you know. Electric cars can, can be great depending on where you live and, and, and how big of a problem you're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if you live somewhere, so like I live in Portland, Oregon, we live right next to a bunch of huge dams that are just pumping out, you know, carbon-free electricity all the time. You know, for someone who lives here and who makes, you know, has short sort of commutes, um, there are relatively affordable electric cars. There's, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of applications for it. The, where I get, suspicious or, or where what, what I question is the idea that this is something that will just scale right right now cars are everywhere and they can do everything and that's what we love about them mm -hmm. is that they will take us anywhere at any time to any place in any conditions uh, you know rain sleet or snow and and electric cars don't really do that electric cars are are fundamental right they have these fundamental challenges you have to plug them in to recharge them they have limited range um, and then I think the big the big problem that I think a lot of people don't realize in terms of of just sort of the ability for electric cars to just scale infinitely is that the supply chain um, yeah. batteries uh, come from <laughs> materials uh, of which there are limited supplies. And if you really look into that supply chain, um, you know, not just I mean, there's there are uh, you know cell capacity. There's actually a lot of, of new battery plants being built, but then there are sort of these processing facilities that have to process the raw materials into battery grade materials. There's kind of a bottleneck there for for some of these things, um, but then if you go you know further up, um, certain materials like like cobalt, uh, sixty percent of it comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo, where you know conditions are not great and there's a lot of not great stuff happening and. Um, yeah, and, and I've, I've been waiting for the moment in which environmental, environmentalists discover what goes into batteries. <laughs> it's, yeah. And, and again, I mean, you know, everything in life's a trade-off, right? right. And, and again, I, 
I definitely think that electric cars are great for certain applications, and there's a, a percentage of the market that will that absolutely should go electric. Um, what what I I think is is more emotional belief than rational analysis is the idea that there's just this you know overnight or or even just in in five or ten years that like you know 60 70 80 whatever percentage of the market is going to go 100% electric it 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 frankly it can't happen for not just because of the supply constraints upstream but also because you know people own cars for for i think the average age of the fleet in the US is 11 years old mm-hmm. um and so there's just it takes time to replace these cars and a lot of people buy cars in a very rational sort of uh you know uh, uh dollars and cents calculus and frankly like it's going to be a while before electric cars win purely on just uh rational analysis rather than you know some environmental aspect to it yeah i agree uh well the biggest thing to me that that i i see is the recharge time is an issue i mean they've, they've managed to work on the range and get the range up to the point where you can go enough miles on it on a tesla that it's somewhat comparable to refilling the tank on your car but what's not comparable is you know spending an hour at the at the supercharger station if you can find a supercharger station where you are you know and the the scale of the infrastructure of gas stations that has been built up over a hundred years and the the quickness and the ease and quickness with which it it can you can refill a gas tank uh and just go on your way and and drive another you know 100 couple hundred miles and and i don't know that there's you know you can project well maybe there will be new leaps forward in technology but they're not there yet yeah yeah well and and you know people have been expecting in battery technology in particular big leaps forward for a long time and for example tesla decided to use cylindrical cells sort of this double a battery kind of form factor for their for their for the cells that make up their battery packs because they believed that there would be all these new chemistries coming out and that you know that was the form factor that they would come out in first and so that they would be able to be ahead of the adoption curve on that and that just hasn't happened and and they you know built that strategy in 2003 um, which is not that long ago, you know, and, um, you know, so there are solid state batteries that are coming and that's actually going to be the the thing that gets a lot more of the big car companies into electric cars that were sort of like Toyota, for example, mm-hmm. has always been pretty hesitant um, about pure electric cars because they, they, they've always been concerned about the safety issues around lithium ion batteries um, and the solid state batteries that are coming out um, don't have those safety issues. They're not really dramatically better performance so it's not like we're going to see range you know go from 200 miles to 800 miles or something or 600 miles it's going to be modest improvements but the safety and uh and i think the the charge times will improve okay well you know the the idea of the big automakers getting into this is i think raises an interesting issue because you know once they get into it they have manufacturing capacity that is enormous and well developed and you know perfected over many decades and that strikes me as sort of the undertold story in some extent above of tesla is that it is a car manufacturing company and they've had a number of problems with manufacturing not just with the you know with with being able to get the quality levels and the fit fit and finish and all that right and also with getting the sheer numbers that they've been promising. You know, they've still got a backlog of the Model 3. I don't yep. see a lot of them. I, I, one thing that struck me is I there's a, a Tesla dealership in on the west end of Richmond, and I occasionally go by it. And it's the only car dealership I've ever seen that doesn't have the parking lot full of models of the car. 
right? Yeah. Well, it's because it's not a dealership. So dealerships are these franchises, right, where um, you have an array. You, you can go out and start, theoretically, start your own dealership, right, for Ford or Chevy or, or Toyota or what have you. Um, and you have an agreement to sell their cars, and there's all kinds of things along with that. But ultimately, then, you as the dealer are the customer of that manufacturer. Um, and this is one of the, the the challenges that Tesla has, right? Is that is that they have the you know every sale goes to an individual, um, and the major manufacturers can get scale more easily because they can just they have these these dealers who will buy mm -hmm. hundreds of cars, thousands of cars, even well hundreds of cars anyway at a time. Um, that uh, you know then they they sort of take on the risk of of then selling them on to the end consumers. But I think um, on a on a broader level. Um, you know, one of the other things that Tesla has done really well in terms of how they present themselves and the way they're perceived is that not only do they make sort of they got away from that environmental hair shirt that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. They also really did a good job of wrapping what they did up in the sort of uh, in the image of Silicon Valley. And right. and this is when the Model S came out. I mean, just having that giant 17 inch screen. I mean, nobody else had anything like that, of course. That was because there were no automotive grade 17 inch screens, and now there's actually all kinds of problems uh, with, uh, you know, Tesla uh, 17 inch screens. I mean, they're they're you know they have these problems where you know uh, uh, bubbles form in the screens, and then adhesive will like drip out into the car, and now they've got this new problem where there's like these yellow bands around the edges, <laughs> which happened to a bunch of iPhones, and and it's because they're you know, well, yeah, I make a point of not leaving my phone in the car on a hot summer day because I don't know what it's going to do to the phone. Right. And so and so what Tesla tapped into really effectively is this, right? And, and if you think about the timing of this, the Model S came out in 2012. Um, the iPhone was really, and, and sort of smartphones and apps, were, that was just really taking off. And what they did is, is they, they aligned their, themselves and their products with that sort of smartphone revolution in a very, very clever sort of aesthetic way, right? Mm -hmm. They did it by, and, and, and what's hilarious is that, you know, the real reason that there's not a lot of, of buttons and, and switches and knobs in a Tesla is because it's way too expensive for them to develop and, and, and tool and get the supply chain for those at the volumes that they sell at. They couldn't do it because of the cost. That's why the Model 3 has the most simple, stripped-down, minimalist interior, is that actually you know, designing, engineering, um, tooling, sourcing, manufacturing, you know, or assembling a, 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 an interior with lots of moving parts gets very expensive very quickly. Right, so I mean, if and, you're doing like 50,000 cars a year, that's a drop in the bucket compared to what the big automakers are doing. Right, so your fixed cost to develop those those parts uh, can only get spread over so many units. Whereas if you're selling 10 million cars a year, like GM or Toyota or Volkswagen, you know you have all the scale to spread those fixed costs across. Right. And that's that's how you make it work in the car business. Um, so so they made a, a virtue out of their out of their problems, and they've and and they've aligned themselves sort of as we're a tech company, and they said this explicitly in the IPO, right. they said we're a technology velociraptor, we're not a car company. Um, and the reality is, is that they are a car company. <laughs> <laughs> um, they've just never really owned it. And and I think what, what, what that's tapped into is people believe because they've seen this revolution of the iPhone and the smartphone and the app store and all these other things, the Uber. I mean, think of all of the things that that, that smartphones have changed. They think that that technology is what 
changes things. And in things like communication and, and information technology, like technology is being at the cutting edge of technology is what makes the difference. In the car industry, the car industry is like it's like the, a ground game kind of business, right? It's well, about I, I think it's walking you know, and tackling. Yeah, there's that Silicon Valley hubris, which basically says information technology, which can be changed and manipulated very quickly, and can you know you can make an app and then make a new app, and you can you know people can move from app to app very quickly. They think that that's technology. And this is, one of, this is one of my pet peeves when I was when I was doing Real Clear Future is that you know people have the idea technology means Silicon Valley and it means apps, whereas technology also means manufacturing and yes. you know, and and the, the gritty the stuff that's viewed as low tech, even though there's a lot of technology yep. involved in an automobile plant. Well, yeah, and, no, and, yeah. Go ahead, and that brings that, me back to 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 the the, the Gigafactory and, and to this idea that. Elon Musk had, and I think which was supposed to be his big breakthrough and uh, a, a competitive advantage against all the other existing traditional manufacturers was the idea of a super automated factory. Yeah. Yeah. So I think he, he was sort of, it was sort of catching up to him that like, you know, really, if you look at the history of the auto industry, what, what makes the, the big differences, what creates the sort of, uh, companies that define their epoch of the of the car industry is manufacturing right it was henry ford was really the, the first one and i mean uh, what that you know uh, production you know system that he created did was just absolutely mind-blowing it, it made cars go from being this tiny niche rich person's thing to something that anybody you know any middle class person could afford um and then subsequent to that you know toyota and the toyota production system i mean people and this is this is what i mean about technology is not the, the be all end all of the car business. You look at Toyota. Toyota went from being a, a loom factory, right? They literally were, <laughs> were uh, you know, a, a spinning and weaving company, um, to the most dominant auto, auto, you know, automaker there is in the course of you know 40, 50 years. And they did it not because their cars were were a sexy, but b high tech. I mean, Toyotas have never been, and and they probably don't like people saying this, but like they've never been on the cutting edge of technology, and it right, hasn't right. mattered because at the end of the day, most people, and this kind of ties back to sort of the issue with with electric cars and other stuff, is is most people just want something that will get them from A to B reliably, mm -hmm. right? And and so there, yes, there are some people who want the latest and greatest technology, but but really, and so so I think he. Elon Musk was starting to realize that, and he and he realized that that manufacturing was very clearly Tesla's weak point, and it had been throughout the history of the company. It had always had this ambivalent relationship to manufacturing because it saw itself as these creative engineer startup guys, right? right? right. Um, and and again, manufacturing—it's all—it's the totally culturally the opposite thing, right? So so in a startup, you want to have dynamic, you know, creative, hire talented, creative people, let them free, let them work all night and drink a lot of Red Bull and come up with these cool, creative ideas, right? Manufacturing is the total opposite. You want people- Wasn't there a point where, where Elon Musk was like camping out on a sleeping bag at, in the factory? Yeah. As yeah. if you could just make a factory work by pulling a lot of all-nighters. That's a exactly. very, it's a very Silicon Valley tech, tech very, startup kind of mentality. Right, when in what you actually need is is a system in place where everyone knows what their role in the system is, and it all—it's—you create a machine. And it's funny because he too—he's he's like, he has that line about how about how you know car companies are like cybernetic collectives. Well, yeah, I mean, they're they're organizations of people in which everyone plays a role, and and making the, uh, an organization of the scale of a car company work 
is very much a, a management regimentation order kind of a thing. Um, and so because the problem is, is that building a, a, a really effective company culture is one of the hardest things there is to do. And it, because you don't, you don't just have to be smart enough to understand how a good system made up of people should work. Um, you also just have to take time. It takes time. Right. And, and, and for a startup, time is, is anathema, right? That's the, right. If you, you don't want something that's going to take time, you're, you're constantly growth hacking, right? right. You're constantly you, you put out, you put out the buggy beta version of the product, knowing yes. that people will, you know, the early adopters will love it anyway, and then they'll help you improve it. And then eventually it'll get, you know, it'll get halfway decent. Right. So I think he thought, you know, okay, well, we'll just, we're tech guys. We'll just come up with a technological solution to, to the manufacturing problem. Well, <laughs> the, the idea of sort of getting humans out of the, the manufacturing, you know, car manufacturing business, um, that was last really popular in like the early 1980s. Mm -hmm. um, granted, technology has come away since then, but um, General Motors uh, and Roger Smith, I mean, they, they tried to build a, a quote unquote lights out factory. Right. And it was an absolute failure. They wasted tons of money um, and it was it. The, they they couldn't make it work, and they the, the the they couldn't get the quality. I mean, as Elon went on to say, humans are underrated. Yeah. Uh, humans <laughs> humans make robots look pretty shitty at like almost everything, um, except for the the most simple tasks. Well, and, I, I think this connects in a way to the to the self driving car hype because we were supposed yeah. to have them by now. We were supposed to have yes. them last year. You know, if yeah. the, according to the projections of five to ten years ago, we were supposed to have them in twenty eighteen. Uh, then we're going to have them in 21, 2021, 21, 2022. The experiments aren't working out that well because it turns out that driving is a fantastically complex and complicated thing. And computers, with all the advances they've made, all the AI, have not quite caught up to the human eye and the human brain. And yep. the, the same thing applies to the self-manufacturing car, which is sort of what, yeah, what, right. what Elon Musk had in mind is that – the manufacturing process involves a lot of the things that are the same way, things that require human eyes and brains on, you know, to be observing the process and, and managing the process and can't be automated yet. Uh, so last November, I, I um, my colleague Bertel Schmidt and I did this round the world tour of car factories. We went to like eight car factories in different places around the world and, and um, in like 18 days. It was, a, it was a wild, crazy trip. But the, the most amazing thing about that to me was really that um, going to, uh, we spent two days in Toyota City, which is this mm -hmm. where Toyota's headquarters are. And, and, and again, they have this Toyota production system. It's always been the core of what they do. And um, it's, it's always been a company that like is, and I know like every company says like, oh, it's about our people. It's about our people. But like really, you know, they look at people the way I think a lot of people in the technology sector look at technology in mm -hmm. that they, they look, you know, people look at technology and they see all this infinite possibility. And what's amazing is that Toyota sees the same thing in people. They think that it, it's almost like it's, it, there's almost like a weirdly religious aspect to it that like, you know, we kind of like just not living up to our potential, but like with discipline, it's almost like monastic, right? With discipline and focus and like- There's, a, there's a sort of a Japanese attitude there. It is, yeah. You know, this and, idea and, of, of perfection through through craftsmanship. Yes. Uh, perfection and, through, human perfection through craftsmanship and the sort of spiritual aspect of craftsmanship is a very Japanese idea. Also one that's had popularity in, in, in the West a number of, I mean, the arts and crafts movement was sort of 
taking that idea in the West. So yeah, yeah. that's a, that's a very has a lot of old roots to that. Right. So instead of instead of saying okay, let's go find the coolest, most high tech robots and put them in, you know, because we have the end goal of just getting people out of the system. What they do is they try and get every person who is a part of their system to be constantly coming up with very little ways of making their own work a little bit more efficient. And so like how that manifests itself in one of the most interesting ways is these thing called uh, Karakuri Kaizen, which are literally, they're like, I don't wanna call them Rube Goldberg machines because Rube Goldberg machines are like as complicated as they could be. And these are as simple as they can be. They're no power, they're they powered either by the weight of a tool or maybe a spring or a counterweight, but just mm -hmm. like the most simple machines you could possibly imagine and all they'll do is, for example, you know, you, you're taking a, a, a screw, uh, you know, a wrench, and you're wrenching something over here, you know, part of your workflow, and then you put the the tool here, you know, up up here, and then the weight it, it'll like slide down. Oh, cool! And then the process of doing that, it'll bring the next bolt up, and and so you know, so it just it's like the most simple automation you can possibly imagine, but rather so than rather having one big sophisticated robot, they have all of their people constantly developing these very small, it's like a distributed automation, right? right? And, and, and what they say is that the only way that you can really automate things well is if there are people who know how to do the job well. And that because, because you need to have those human skills. Yeah. And so they've actually started training people more uh, since, uh, it, since sort of you know, more automation has come up because they say, you, you need to have high-skilled people in order for, for to even know how to start to program these robots right, right. and use them effectively. So anyway, I kind of that was back on the manufacturing thing. And not no, that's, very, that, that's totally that. fascinating, though, so I'm, I'm very happy to hear about that. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I think this gets back to, though, with the, the failure of the super-automated, sort of super-technologically-automated robots are going to build everything vision. I think that's sort of underappreciated how that affects Tesla. Because what it means is that they're now high. I, I think I saw some figure about this this Fremont plant they have. The, there used to be a Numi plant for yep. for Toyota. Uh, it was Toyota, wasn't it? The, it was. It was actually originally a General Motors plant. It was a and then, GM and, and then like a Toyota. Toyota plant. came right. in and they were a joint venture, so that GM could actually learn the Toyota production system. It was actually an incredibly revolutionary uh, place and and moment for the American car industry. Right. It was sort of when they when they finally realized like. You know the arrogance is it is not getting us anywhere. We have to like open our minds to like learning how it is that these people are are kicking our butts. Well, I want to get back to that in a second because I think that's relevant to this. But but so he has this newbie plant that used to be uh, Toyota GM joint venture, and now he's produ he's producing fewer cars there with more people than were operating there under the yeah. old system. And that's really what's I mean that's why Tesla's been burning through so much cash is because they have to hire a lot more people to produce you know, cars at, at a much lower rate of efficiency than a standard automaker. Yeah, that's one of the reasons. I don't know that, that their labor cost alone is, is why they struggle to make money. Um, it's just a very hard business to make money in right, right. It, it, for anybody, right? Um, and uh, and there, are, there are lots of parts of it. I think their quality is one of the reasons that they're having a hard time making money is that they, I mean, if you read the forums and, and the problems they have and the repairs they have to make, and what they have to do for their customers for free to just keep them, you know, going along. Yeah. Um, 
that's that's a really big issue. But but again, quality and and right, it comes from manufacturing. Um, and I think the bigger issue here is that uh, you know with this sort of Silicon Valley hubris of oh we can we can do so much better than the traditional car industry. Uh, yep. It's almost like he he sort of stuck back in the '70s of thinking that you know the auto industry is Detroit in 1974, you know, yep. sort of complacent and bloated and not and ready to be ripe for a new competitor to come in. But the auto industry as it exists today is actually extremely competitive, and any new idea you have has probably been tried <laughs> by them and had capital put into it on a larger scale. And yep. you really need to be operating at that larger scale to compete. I mean, they say you need to make 10 million cars a year to be competitive. Well, uh, 10 million is the top tier. So, ten, right. so Toyota, GM, Volkswagen are the big ones. And then I guess sort of Nissan, Renault, Alliance, uh, they're up in the sort of 10 million realm. Um, what, what Sergio Marchione of, of Fiat Chrysler said as sort of the impetus for bringing Fiat Chrysler together was that you have to sell five million a year basically to be okay. to be competitive. Yeah. But I mean, that's, you know, yeah, it's 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 an order of magnitude more than than what Tesla even concurrently aspired to in the short term. Right now, they're trying to get to 500,000 units a year. Mm -hmm. okay? And so that is a a like I said, it's, it's an order of magnitude less than sort of where people have said the bar is to be competitive in the business now. Frankly, if 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 Tesla sort of were to get over the the sort of and and this is the problem with 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 hubris, right? Is that right. it pulls you in too many different directions. If you even just focus your hubris in one direction, you can make it, right? I mean, Ferrari has plenty of hubris, but they're not <laughs> out there saying that we're going to make a thirty-five thousand dollar car, right? Right. Um. And I think if if Tesla were to focus, um, they have an extremely powerful brand. Um, they have a, a customer base that will literally put up with almost anything um, and pay any price and bear any burden to drive their cars. Um, you know, the traditional sort of business response to that is let's make a premium brand, let's raise our prices, let's make right. special editions, let's fleece these suckers, frankly. <laughs> um, well, I, I think you, you have to view it as the idea that this is not, this car is not a rational calculation. It's something yeah. people, you know, I and mean, that's what the luxury cars and the, and the high performance cars are like. It's not a rational yeah. calculation. It's not, I need, a, I need to get the kids to school in the morning. It's, yep. I want something exciting and I want something high performance. I want something that uh, makes me feel special. Right. I, want, I want the image. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that's what, what strikes me is that, you know, the, the, the environmentalist dream that they're trying to create is we have to create a mass market car. We have to have the $35,000 car so that right. everybody could be driving one. Yep. But what they can actually achieve is we can make a luxury car for $100,000. Yes. <laughs> which, which, and, and that's what they've done. I mean, originally the Roadster was supposed to be $85,000. Right. Eventually yeah, it got to 100, 110. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, then they had to raise the price by the time it got to market. It was basically $110,000. The first year of production for the Roadster, they sold at a loss, at a gross margin loss, actually yeah. on a bill of materials loss. Literally wow. the parts that made up the Roadster for the first years cost more than what they were getting for it. Right. And then, and then the Model S, which is their second car, it was supposed to be half the price and twice the volume, you know. And they said repeatedly, and they got the, the government loan on the on the idea that this mm -hmm. would be a fifty fifty thousand dollar car. Well, the average transaction price for Model S is about ninety eight thousand dollars, right? And, so and, right, and, almost almost exactly the same as the Roadster. Well, and that's the thing about the about the Tesla, uh, the Model S, is I look at it and I think it, this is a this is a hundred thousand dollar car, but it's kind of equivalent to what you can get for a fifty thousand dollar car. You can get, you know, there's, you can get a really nice, you know, Mercedes Benz for in the neighborhood of fifty thousand dollars, but 
you pay, you know, they get people to pay the upcharge and go to more like, I don't know, like an Audi S8, you know, one of the super duper luxury car. They yep. get to go more to that price range, not so much on the quality of the car or the interior or that sort of thing, but more on the image and the, the, the people want to have that I'm helping save the world. And, and I got to say, it's a little bit of, I see this, um, my wife's an architect, so I see this in the building industry a little bit with the lead certified things. And so they'll, it, it, oftentimes there's a lot of what's called greenwashing that goes on where it's like, well, I want to put in the more expensive roof tiles. Yep. Uh, and well, hey, they'll help me get a higher lead score. <laughs> Yeah, you know, so you, I, I'm safe. I'm, I'm not just putting in a higher quality uh, material. I'm saving the world. So it's like right. it's a way to say I. It's okay to to splash out on a luxury status symbol, because yeah. I've got some some virtuous thing that I'm doing by doing that. Yeah. No. And and actually, uh, my friend Alex Roy, who I I host uh, co-host the Atonicast with, um, he he says it really well, which is and actually I think maybe he got it from Horse to Do. I. I'm not sure, but but it the 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 genius of of a Tesla is that it simultaneously virtue signals and vice signals, right? <laughs> and 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 so this guy Horace Tudor was like, he's like, you know, I had these friends who would buy Jaguars back in the day, and like like the unreliability of that car and like the the horrible situations that it would strand him in were like something he would love to talk about you know, at, at, at cocktail parties and stuff, because it shows you're committed, you know, and you're, you're committed enough to being your own person that you're willing to, you know, have to call a tow truck like multiple times a month. And, and so there's that vice signaling, but then it's in vice signaling isn't really the right way to put it. Humble but, brag, but, I think it says that thing It's like, yeah, oh, then, oh, poor me. I had to walk home from my Jaguar. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's a, it's a, yeah, sort of like rich people problem, right? It, right, right? it shows that you can afford to have these sorts of problems and that you can take them on willingly, that you choose them. And then on there, top was, of there that, was a Bloomberg headline for the ages a while, a couple of weeks ago about the problems of uh, luxury super yacht owners having champagne uh, champagne corks popping and hitting their priceless art. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, that's the yeah. ultimate like rich person, rich person yeah. dilemma. Oh, what do I do? The champagne cork hit my uh, priceless piece of art. Totally. And so, and so, for someone for, for for a Tesla to have that kind of an amazing luxury brand or premium, it's not really luxury, like premium brand, um, and to then want to get into the mass market makes zero sense. Like the mass market is. Uh, the mass market for cars is a commodity business. You are selling a, a point A to point B commodity, right? And and sure, there's like you know there's sort of like the entry luxury market, and there's a lot of cars get sold and leased and that. But like at the end of the day, like if you if if you want to actually make money, you know you want to be as high up the 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 food chain as you can in terms of of getting into getting people to pay you extra just for your brand, right? right. Because that doesn't cost more to manufacture. It doesn't cost more to develop. It just it's intangible that lets you make more money. Um, and and that, that's kind of what, why I think – go ahead. Well, no, I was just – the, the, the fundamental question I have, and, and we may never really know the answer to this, is would Tesla as a – be as powerful as a pre, of a premium brand if it didn't always have that sort of messianic like, you know, you're paying a lot for this car, but you're, you're you know, by buying it, you're going to actually help – you know, people less fortunate than you, you know, well, it's going to help us develop a car for the people who are less fortunate than you. Yeah, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And, that, and that we're going to ultimately be this gigantic mass market car company without that sort of aspect to it. Would it have become as powerful of a, of a brand as it is? I don't know. Maybe. You know, I, I certainly don't think it would have a market cap higher than GM, even for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, and <laughs> 
that I mean that's a and and I think that's why you know that's why they had to do this like you know ambitious manufacturing plan. That's why they have to say that they're going to have self-driving cars. Is because at some point you know people will invest in you because they believe in what you're doing to a certain extent, but at some point you have to have at least a story about how you're going to make more money than GM selling again like an order of magnitude fewer cars um and that's what these things are about uh it's about saying you know well someday the car will just drive itself and so what so you know people will be able to buy it and and it will go off while they're at work and earn money for them and pay itself off (laughs) Be like this economic you know perpetual motion machine um which is also very clearly a sort of taking autonomous drive technology and trying to make it fit into a traditional you know selling private car mode which really doesn't make a lot of sense if you look at the yeah. at the uh how the technology will will actually work well and also a lot of that stuff is very speculative like well someday the technology will work out really great and this will all be you know th- this will all work better but yeah. my thought is you know given how competitive and efficient the the auto automobile industry is i'm thinking w- when electric cars actually become usable as a mass market product you know toyota's going to going to build 5 million of them. And, you know, uh, all these other companies. Yeah, Volkswagen. Uh, the, the Chevy Bolt, I think, is, the, is the, probably the most successful sort of non-glamorous, uh, uh, mass, more mass market priced version of this. You know, that the minute this becomes something that's a viable option for the average person on the pure dollars and cents practical level, yeah. these other companies are going to come eat, eat, eat Tesla's lunch because they get the manufacturing down. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And 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 they they've already they already have the factories, right? They already have the 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 employees, they have the system in place that's been built up and and more importantly, it's been refined over a century mm-hmm. in a lot of the cases of a lot of these companies. And I think that's one of the the really fundamental mistakes that the sort of tech hubris makes is that they're sort of like, well, you know, these car companies aren't putting 17-inch screens in their cars. It must be because they're idiots or like they're just stuck in their ways or whatever. They're, they're the incumbents and we're the disruptors. So the fact that they're not putting 17-inch screens in their cars must mean that 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 they're dumb and we're smarter. When in fact there there are no automotive grade, you know, 17-inch screens that you can put in a car. And and <laughs> and if you look at what's happening to the ones that Tesla put in, and, and Elon Musk brags about them not being automotive grade, um and and you you read the forums and you can tell why nobody wants to replace every screen in every car like multiple times because they cannot get these things you know to to stand up to the conditions in a car the the heat swing temperature swings and things like yeah. that i think you were putting out the other day there's a reason why the technology in cars seems to be kind of low tech and old fashioned by the standards of Silicon Valley is because you want to be behind the curve. You want to go with the tried and true and the tested. It's something that's going to work without any upgrades for 11 years. Right. Cars just aren't like smartphones just aren't cars. Sorry. Cars just aren't smartphones. Smartphones aren't cars. These are two separate things. Right. And it really frustrates me when when people confuse them because, you know, and, and so like the, the people like to say, well, you know, you know, you look at an traditional car interior, and there's all these buttons. And you look at the at the Tesla, and there's there's no buttons. It's just one big touchscreen. And this is like you can tell this one's the iPhone, and this one's the BlackBerry, and therefore this one is going to take over, and this one is going to die. And it's like, you know, when you use a you know, when you use a BlackBerry, like there's no life and death advantage to doing that. But right. The difference between looking at a, a touchscreen, going through the menu to mm-hmm. find, you know, the setting, having to look at something, 
and then and in order to change it versus being able to reach down to that knob that is always in the same place and always does the exact same thing and you know it and you don't even have to look at it and you barely have to even think about it and you just reach down turn the knob to turn up your music or turn down the heat or whatever else it is you know it allows you to keep your eye on the road it's just a you know there there is no there's no such thing as distracted phone use right i right. mean you know you don't <laughs> well, run the, the risk phone use of, is what distracts you from everything exactly. else yes <laughs> but you don't run the risk of killing yourself or other people if you are not you know if you if you take your eyes off your phone whereas when you're driving taking your eyes off the road is extremely dangerous right 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 yeah and so and, and, so, and then we can talk about then about the 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 musk also making a lot of promise or tesla also making a lot of promises about automated driving and auto so-called quote-unquote autopilot which isn't really autopilot uh but that gets into the wider issue of you know getting very excited about the idea of autonomous driving but how difficult it really is has proven to be to implement it yeah so and and here i actually think this is the the issue that is most dangerous to tesla um because you know manufacturing whatever you know they, they can you know they can always be a, a premium brand or whatever else, but but with the with the with the self-driving car thing, they have taken people's money uh, for for a full what they call full self-driving. Elon Musk right. said when he announced it, it is level five. Level five means 100% automated. Don't have to look at anything, touch anything, do anything. Go take a nap. In, yeah, take a nap in any and all conditions, right? So level four means fully automated, but only in a limited domain, right? So mm -hmm. maybe in a, you know, within one city or just on a, you know, but but a geofence basically. Right. Level five means it'll be just like a car, right? Our cars today are level five and that we can, or you know, if you have a truck or something, right? SUV, you can just take it anywhere, um, anytime, doesn't matter the weather or whatever. So basically the entire industry um, everybody who's serious in self-driving car development says that level five is not even worth talking about. And Elon Musk is already taking money for it. <laughs> and, and if you look at just the, the, the change in, in tenor, you know, back in, and, and really why, why Tesla got into this was, was in, in 2013 and we didn't, nobody knew it at the time, even though they were a public company. Um, but they almost went bankrupt in, in the first quarter of 2013, actually twice mm -hmm. in 2012. Um, but they, he was so scared that he made a deal with Google. And this was before Google came out and showed their little koala car, you know, the Firefly. Right. Um, and so everyone just thought it was experimental. Well, he, he had this negotiations with Google. They, they had basically a deal in principle, according to the reporting. And, um, and then uh, they, they pulled off this miraculous one quarter turnaround. Their stock, this was right when their stock started going crazy. And Elon Musk went on this, you know, I, this is what I call in the book sort of where ludicrous mode the company went into ludicrous mode where they're making new <laughs> announcements every week but he had never talked about autopilot or self-driving or any of that stuff until that point and it seems pretty clear to me he saw what google was doing realized how far along they were and realized wait a second like we're not going to be the hot silicon valley mobility trend anymore like electric mm. cars are going to be yesterday's news and autonomous cars are going to be tomorrow's news. And that's why there's always been this sort of frantic aspect to it and and sort of, you know, creating something that is basically, I mean, the technology for, for, for autopilot has been around effectively since the 1990s, right? Uh, adaptive cruise control right. has been around since the 90s. Lane keep assist has been a, a, not quite as long, but it's still a lot of brands have it. Um, and, and Tesla just took that technology and pushed it farther 
that anybody else was willing to push it or, or that their lawyers would allow them to push it, <laughs> right? And, and, and blurred the lines about what is a driver assist between what's driver assist and what is self-driving. Right. And it was all just because he knew he had to stay on top of this wave. Well, what's happened is, is that the wave stopped, right? When that Uber crash happened, and frankly, mm -hmm. when several of these yeah. Tesla autopilot deaths have happened, right. all of a sudden everyone's like, whoa, hit the brakes. Like we need to adjust expectations here. You know, these, these, this technology will happen, but it's we can't be in this race to try and look further ahead than, than everyone else. And and so so the whole space just chilled and like took a step back and Elon had no choice. Like Tesla had no choice. They had to keep being at the forefront of that. And now they just look like charlatans. Well, I think actually that the, the over-promising, the extravagant promises and the, the hype is actually, that's part of Tesla's brand. Because, you know, part of the appeal was, okay, mass market electric car, we're going to fight global warming. But yeah. the other part of the appeal is Elon Musk as the great innovator, the visionary, the visionary billionaire. Now, I kind of have to hand it to him. We're in an anti-businessman, anti-billionaire kind of culture, right? Where, yeah. uh, uh, you know, everybody goes to Starbucks and drinks their coffee, but Howard Schultz wants to run for president and he's a bad guy. Everybody hates uh, 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 Jeff Bezos of Amazon. You know, we don't, we, don't, we don't even want his stinking jobs in New York City. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, every, every Mark Zuckerberg, don't get me started on Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, every, yeah. every billionaire, even the tech billionaires are bad guys, but Elon Musk alone. I mean, as, as an Ayn Rand fan, it's like how I, I kind of think he, you know, he gets treated like an Ayn Rand hero, one of her heroic businessmen, but greenwashing that in a way that's acceptable in a way to to people who were not the Ayn Rand fans, which I think right. is kind of amusing. Um, and you know, I kind of think always think of the million people on Mars thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, he makes these ludicrous claims, but the, the, the sheer ludicrousness of it, the, yeah. the makes him makes him look like a visionary. Yeah. And that's that's part of maintaining the brand and keeping the stock price up and keeping the buyers enthusiastic. You're not just investing in Tesla. You're not just helping the planet. You're also being on the cutting edge of the vision of a visionary billionaire. Yeah. And and what's really fascinating to me about that is that. You know, you'll talk to people, particularly in the in the autonomous drive space. Um, well, I will talk to people, and and they people will say privately um, that they think that what he's doing is completely irresponsible, that it's dangerous, that he's putting people people's lives at risk, that he's conning people, that there's no way he can possibly deliver. I mean, then people will just devastating critiques of him privately. But it never comes out really publicly from from within Silicon Valley because there's always the sense that you know, Elon is sort of the the mascot for Silicon Valley, <laughs> and that like you know yeah he's pushing it too far. But like if he really comes completely crashing down, you know the knock on effect on everybody else mm. in Silicon Valley it will create a crisis of confidence in Silicon Valley as an entire culture, which is ironic also because. You know, they're the actually way... making that more likely to happen. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> By not dealing with it themselves, you know, and not being not not saying that, hey, you know, this guy doesn't represent us, um, you know, but but he does enough good for them um, that and, and he he just he he keeps that fire of, of wanting to believe, like you said, at sort of the mm -hmm. beginning of the show uh, alive. And and like a lot of technology is really um like an ideology or like a, a religion almost that people just mm -hmm. believe that it's this fundamentally good thing that will always create good progress and all this sort of stuff. And, and Elon is the, the high priest of that. 
Um, and because of that, he can't get called out for his excesses, which is really scary because some of his excesses are very excessive. <laughs> well, you know, I think there is a, a cultural sort of hunger for that kind of uh, technological optimism. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's interesting that it has to be clothed in environmentalism because environmentalism is the primary force of technological pessimism right now, right? <laughs> the idea that, you know, all of our high technology is destroying the planet and all the industry that we've built, it's all destroying the planet. We went too far. Yep. And I think it's precisely because he manages to combine the two. Yeah. This excessive technological optimism that's still ex clothed in a way that's, that's, that's um, acceptable for the techno-pessimists of the environmentalist movement. Yep. And it unleashes something that's pent up that people really want. They want that technological optimism. Yeah. But, you know, I sometimes feel it's like it's like arguing about Donald Trump uh, because people say, well, here's what people want to see in Donald Trump. They want somebody who will challenge political correctness. I'm like, well, great, but maybe we could have had somebody else do that. <laughs> right. Right. No, and I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that's one of the most amazing things about Elon Musk is that for years he has been able to do something that almost everybody in American public life hasn't, which is appeal to put sort of cross this vast cultural divide in right, this country, right? right? Um, there aren't, if you try to think of people who, who have, you know, such strong appeal, even within limited parts of sort of both sides of that, that cultural divide, uh, there's not a lot of other people that, that can do that. Um, I think that's actually been changing, though. I think certainly um, my perception is that, and, you know, someone who's been sort of was sort of more early on the on the sort of watchdogging <laughs> and and criticizing side of this. It was very lonely for a while, right. and it's gotten a lot less lonely in the last couple of years. Good, um, yeah. And um, frankly, it's been among people on both sides. Um, right. I think the left has really turned hard against him on labor issues, mm. uh, and uh, and sort of seeing him as a fake environmentalist, maybe to a certain extent, flying the private jet, all that other stuff. Um, and you know, I think there's there's yeah. So I think there's I think obviously things are the 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 attitude towards him has changed. Right. Well, I, I you know, it, it strikes me as something similar to, I had a friend on recently who's uh, uh, been in, spent the last 10 years in China. And he said, you know, I've been predicting that, you know, the, that the situation in China is going to deteriorate. I've been predicting that for 10 years and somehow it never seems to happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That something, something's got to give at some point, but it seems to keep going. And, and criticizing Tesla sort of feels the same way that, really you know, at some point something's got to give. Yeah. And yet it still somehow managed to, manages to keep levitating for another quarter. Yeah, no, and, and you know, it's funny because, I mean, the, the company, Tesla themselves and their, their company blog has accused me of being short their stock, or at least it's very strongly insinuated, which I never have been. Um, and frankly, like, I'm really glad I have it because, you know, you look at these guys are, are you know, looking at the numbers right? and they're like, okay, at some point, you know, economic gravity sets in and, and you can't <laughs> defy that forever. Um, and they've been making big bets on it for years now, in some cases since 2013. And it, it just hasn't happened. And so, yeah, I mean, and, and that's been actually one of the big challenges of writing this book is like, you know, it could, in theory, all collapse overnight tomorrow or today. Yeah. I mean, over the course of this conversation, something could have happened that, <laughs> that, could, that could be the catalyst because it's it, the, the foundations are in some, in some ways so shaky. But they're also just so resilient as a company and Elon Musk is so resilient as an individual and as a, a brand. Um, I, you know, you really can't predict how this is going to play out. And, and I, like I said, I, I, this has been my, I've lived and breathed this stuff for, you know, for years, uh, you know, to my main focus since 2015. And I, you know, I have no idea what's going to happen, which is kind of what makes it a great story. 
Well, you know, I, I think that, you know, it's a lot like the sort of uh, the tulip. I call it an environmental tulip mania uh, in, in a sense of it has, it has that character of a bubble. And the thing about a bubble is you can know it's going to pop, but that's different from knowing when it's going to pop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, I know a lot of people who are predicting that the housing market was going to crash and they were right. It was going to crash. But, you know, they were predicting it for four years straight and it took a long time. Some of them lost money predicting yep. it for a long time. Yep. But uh, so you have you have a book coming out on this. Uh, now let me give let me let you give a plug for the book. When is that coming out? Uh, so uh, right now, I guess it's scheduled for August. Um, uh, you can find it on Amazon if you uh, you can pre-order it. If you search for uh, uh, "Ludicrous Tesla" uh, on Amazon, you'll you'll find it. Uh, it's published by Ben Bella Books, and uh, it's been a long time in the making. And I think if you're at all curious about any of this stuff, uh, you will you will find some interesting stuff in there. I'm definitely going to get it. Uh, so that's ludicrous, the untold story, or the unvarnished story of Tesla Motors. Yep. Uh, my guest has been Ed Niedermeyer. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. If you enjoyed this conversation, uh, you can follow our channel on YouTube, follow our podcast. And for more ideas and analysis, you can go to the Trzinski Letter, www.trzinskiletter.com. You can also support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash salon of the refused. I'm Rob Trzinski. Thank you for listening.